I, I remember this very well. And, and Don James and we were watering the sand in, and we were watering the field when he came out uh, for pregame warm-up, and we took the sprinklers off, and he went nuts. He thought we were trying to make it slick. Oregon-Washington, it's a huge rivalry. What better person to talk about it than former Oregon Ducks coach Rich Brooks? Hear that story and a whole lot more from Rich Brooks in this episode of Gonzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Gonzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. So one thing that has occurred to me, and not just this week with the Oregon-Washington game, but a few times in the last, what, four months since USC and UCLA left, right, the Pac-12 is now trying to craft this, as listeners know, right, trying to craft a media deal. And in the new world for the Pac-12, they got to figure out, how to get as much value as they can out of their football product. And I've been thinking about the Oregon-Washington game in that context. The two schools now, without USC and UCLA, those two schools are even more important to the conference. And that game specifically, which has always drawn well, right? It always gets multiple million viewers. It's it's always uh, on a broadcast network, right? Fox and or whether it's Fox or ABC, right? It's a huge game for the conference. But in the new world, it's even a bigger deal. And so I have been thinking, is there a way, is there anything the conference could do to draw even more value out of Oregon, Washington? I even had the crazy thought that they should have those two teams play twice Mm. in a season, play once in Eugene and once in Seattle. That would you know, TV partners might be interested in that. It's totally outside the box, right? Obviously, that never has happened in college football. But there's got to be ways that the Pac-12 can wring every single dollar out of what is now, without the USC and UCLA game, what now right might be the most single, most valuable product it has in its football inventory. I don't want to see them play twice, though, because there's a no? chance with no divisions they could play again someday in a conference championship game i wouldn't want to see that three times but i i get yeah. what you're saying i think i think if you're the pac-12 you're george kliofkoff like you you look at this game and you go look there are rivalry games in the conference arizona arizona state washington washington state oregon oregon state like there are rivalry games but this one goes beyond that because it is a rivalry that doesn't happen on traditional rivalry week it could be a week-long sort of celebration of this thing. Like, if you're the Pac-12 and you have control of the Pac-12 networks, you could make an event out of this. You could create a week of run-up to this game. And how about a trophy between these two teams? There's so much rivalry between these two teams, but there's nothing exchanged at the end of it. Create a cup, you know, create a trophy. Create something that can be paraded around and gives you a visual representation of the winner. Yeah, I mean, that's a great idea. And if you're, you know, if you're Fox and ESPN, right, you, the way the current TV selections go is they can essentially take four games off the table before the season starts, right? This is always one of the games that they have, you know, take it basically taken aside to make sure that they're going to have access to it. Uh, and without the USC-UCLA game, you know, what is left for 
you know, to be the number one pick. And I, I think this, this may be the single, you know, Stanford Notre Dame is not going to uh, necessarily be as valuable. Maybe it's close to, to Oregon, Washington, but it is like, it is a next level chess piece. It's like the queen in some ways now for the PAC 12, when it's trying to, you know, maximize its, its media value. I mean, Another option? Do you try to move this game to a neutral site? Do you play no, it in L.A. No. or Las I, Vegas? I want it. I want it. Three years. I want it at a. I want it at a home stadium, and I want <laughs> it flip flopping. And here's. I go further. Let's create some tradition around the game. Let's have it be like Halloween weekend. It's Oregon, Washington every year. That's the game. It's on the schedule. It it rotates between Oregon and Washington. It has to have some separation from the traditional rivalry weekend. Yeah. And I don't like that it's happening this year so late in the season. I want this game like, you know, it shouldn't be the first conference game, but Halloween weekend feels about right to me. And just so people know, traditionally, hey, Halloween weekend, because it's a little, <clears throat> the atmosphere anyway on that Halloween weekend is a little nutty anyway at the stadiums. Yeah. And I've seen some weird things happen, but uh, I think Oregon, Washington, Always in a home stadium because, again, you could have this game in Vegas if it's for the conference championship someday. If Kalen DeBoer and Dan Lanning stick around, these two programs are going to matter long term. The other thing they could do is they could give both teams – you know how Alabama and LSU always have a bye before their game? They should just give Oregon and Washington the week off. That makes sure both of them are healthy. That makes sure you're going to get the best product possible. It gives you two weeks of hype. They do need to – you know, I, the Pac-12 traditionally has liked to, tr- you know, like to treat everybody the same. All the games the same. All the teams the same. I don't think they should treat this game the same going forward. We've for a long time talked about having Rich Brooks on the show, and longtime Oregon coach was there, matched up with Don James on the Washington side. Rich Brooks has got great history in the state of Oregon. He was a player at Oregon State, a coach. At Oregon, uh, he's been in the conference in a variety of different roles. He was at UCLA for a couple of years, different times, and I think he's got great perspective on this. We're going to interview Rich Brooks coming up. Uh, before that, I'm John Canzano. You can read me exclusively at johnconzano.com. Uh, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. I'm here with John Wilner, of course, as always. Uh, you can find Wilner at pac12hotline.com and follow him on Twitter at wilnerhotline. Uh, Will, are you excited about talking to Rich Brooks here? I am excited because, you know, the Oregon-Washington game, I've watched it from afar, right? I didn't – I'm not from the Northwest, didn't go to those schools, but I have always been fascinated by the the animosity, uh, the hatred. Uh, I think it's great. It's part of what makes college football fantastic. And this is a chance to kind of take a deep dive in, for me into the origins of it. And, you know, what did he see? He was right in a lot of ways. Oregon was a little brother for a long time. And, you know, what did he see of Don James and how did the rivalry evolve in, in his his eyes? I, I can't wait for this. Uh, I'm excited about this next guest, uh, Rich Brooks, longtime coach at the University of Oregon. Uh, you talk about a guy who, you know, Coached on both sides of the Oregon-Oregon State rivalry. Coached throughout what was the Pac-10 conference in the NFL, then on to the SEC with Kentucky. 
Uh, Rich Brooks is joining us. Coach, I appreciate you making time. You know, it's Washington, Oregon week. It felt like an appropriate time to bring you on. Give our listeners a little idea of, you know, kind of a, a day in the life of Rich Brooks. What, give us, you know, you're playing some golf. What do you do normally? Well, that's about it. Golf or fish or do some traveling. And uh, by the way, it wasn't the Pac-10. It was the Pac-8 when I first came to the University of Oregon. And then we uh, added Arizona and Arizona State to make it the Pac-10. What, what was that like when, when that expansion happened? Did, did it feel as wild as things feel in today's world? You know, it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time because a lot of people thought, particularly Arizona State, uh, would come in and be the next USC in the league because they had the, the nice weather, the good facilities, uh, and, uh, you know, very close to L.A. for a good recruiting base. And, and Arizona was growing the state, and there were a lot of good football players in the state of Arizona. Rich, what do you see, you know, the Oregon-Washington game coming up this week? It is, in some ways, it's the, the biggest rivalry in the Pac-12. You know, if you combine the hatred of the fan bases with the way the two teams have, have succeeded on the field, how do you see that rivalry well, it's it's done a flip flop, obviously, since my days. Uh, uh, we were the have-nots, and Washington were part of the haves. Uh, Don James had everything going his way up there, and and now the Huskies are seeing the other side of that rivalry. And you know, I go back to my playing days at Oregon State. Uh, Oregon State Washington was always a big rivalry, and. In those days, Oregon State and Oregon played the Washington game in Multnomah Stadium. Mm. Uh, and so the Huskies didn't have to travel very far, and neither did uh, the Beavers and the Ducks. But we kind of got robbed of having that game on our campus in those days. Uh, and then it switched to the campuses. And I don't know if you know, there was an old rule uh, between the four Northwest schools the ADs kind of had a gentleman's agreement that they wouldn't travel by plane, that they would take buses. And uh, that worked all fine and dandy until Don James was bringing a team down uh, in, the, in the 80s. And we had just put in new Omni turf. And I, I remember this very well. And, and Don James and we were watering the sand in. And we were watering the field when he came out uh, for pregame warm-up, and we took the sprinklers off, and he went nuts. He thought we were trying to make it slick. We were just trying to keep the sand from coming up and getting in the players' uniforms. <laughs> and and on that trip down, they had a bus the bus trip, and somewhere up above Longview, they pulled into a rest stop because. Don James was in the first bus and the second bus passed him with the, I don't know if the offense or defensive bus, but Don James was on the first bus and he pulled into the rest stop and called, told the guy to tell the other bus to pull in. And he, and he immediately proceeded to chew out the bus driver that, you know, you never, ever let the second bus pass the first bus ever and then he came down and saw us water in the field and we won that game we beat them i think that was the terry Obi 
49 special reverse on fourth and one from about the four. And uh, we scored and won the game. And after that, Don James never took a bus ride in the Northwest again. He went home. He was so incensed because they, when they, when he chewed that bus driver out, that bus driver refused to get back in and drive the bus. And they had to drive a driver up from Portland to finish the trip. So it took a, what was normally a five hour bus trip into about a seven hour bus trip. And I think he blamed that for the loss. And, uh, anyway, the, the rivalry has changed a great deal. Uh, and certainly, uh, the Huskies have had some ups and downs, and then Oregon has had their number pretty good for the last, oh, 20-plus years. When did you – do you think the Kenny Wheaton game was really the start, or does it go back further in terms of the real, you know, the animosity and the passion level being where they are now? Well, you know, it's it's always been, I think, pretty strong. Uh, I can remember when my first game, uh, Don James came to town and, uh, I think it was his either second or third year. It was my first year and we had played, uh, and lost a really close game at Georgia had been at TCU and won that game in a wild, crazy game. And, and then played Bill Walsh's team at Stafford and lost a close game and came home to play the Huskies and Washington, I think, had a, a two and one record coming or no three and oh they were oh and three excuse me and they were coming to town and they were talking about maybe john james was going to get fired up there and we we ran three offensive plays and we were down 21 to nothing and a game ended up 53 to nothing i believe and that was my welcoming to the rivalry, which I thought was going to be a close, hard-fought football game. And Don James went on to go to the Rose Bowl, and then his run started. And I was in the middle of that run, obviously, and took the brunt of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had some good ones. We, had, we beat them up there with a, with a lot of uh, Washington kids uh, in 1980 uh, up in Seattle. And that was a big win for us because we had not had a lot of success and, and, uh, it was, it was a great win for us. And we had a lot of Washington kids on the roster that they hadn't offered. And every year after that, when I went into the state of Washington and offered a kid within a week, Don James, if he hadn't already offered that kid, he'd come in on top of me and offer him because mm. he wasn't going to let me get any more of those good Washington kids. In a rivalry like that, is is it known when you come in as a player, like you know that you that this is part of the rivalry is you, you know part of being a Oregon player uh, was that you don't like Washington or is that something that is learned? Is it is it more is it a bigger deal with the coaches and then the players pick up on it or do the players also have sort of that provincial feel when they walk through the door? Well, I think you know in the old days everybody knew it because there was a lot of continuity in Oregon coaching staffs. Uh, even when I left, we still had a whole bunch of assistants here. Uh, the players, uh, weren't coming in from the transfer portal for one year and playing, uh, the NIL wasn't involved. 
uh, and and you knew the rivalries. Uh, everybody knew them in in the whole department. Uh, I think that that has kind of lost a little of its edge with players uh, transferring all over the country. Uh, but it's still, I think, a very obvious one because the fan base won't let the coaches or the players forget the rivalries. What was your relationship with Don James like? Uh, really liked Don. He was a solid guy, uh, intense. Uh, he hated to lose on the golf course. Uh, he just, uh, he was a very, very good football coach and, and a very tough football coach. They were a physical football team and, uh, you know, he was an outstanding football coach. What was he like as a golfer? You know, very competitive. Like I said, he hated to lose, uh, and neither one of us were great golfers, but God help you if you ever beat him. I mean, he, he, he'd go nuts. The memorable games that, that you coached in, these rivalries, you know, obviously we, we probably talk about we talk about things like the pick or you you mentioned that story with, you know, the watering of the field and the bus ride. What else stands out to you when you think back of, like, the rivalry at, at its best or maybe even at, at its worst? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, the year I took over as AD, uh, when we uh, would go to Washington, uh, both both teams in the Northwest, or almost all the teams in the Northwest, even when we bust, we would take our bands. And, and the Huskies would set our band on chairs behind the track, in the end zone, on the field, in chairs. That's where they would sit and have to play. And when they came to Eugene, we had to give them a section of seats, and their band was bigger than our band. So it was as a revenue source. When we gave the seats to the Huskies, it probably cost us twenty thousand dollars in revenue that we could have sold those seats for. So I brought up a, a thing in, that if if one team had to give seats to a band, then they had to reciprocate in the stadium, and and if not, then they had to buy the seats. If, if they were able to be sold. And obviously nobody was going to buy seats at Husky Stadium on the field. And Barbara Hedges was the AD and she, she went nuts. And, and, and I had, before lunch, I had enough votes in the ADs that we were going to flip that vote. And, uh, and then after lunch, that changed because Barbara did a little, uh, I think, politicking at lunch. Uh, and and that, that's just part of the rivalry, a story that nobody knows anything about. Uh, and, and the Huskies always wanted to take advantage of it. They had, they had the bigger stadium. They had more money. They had the wherewithal to, to, to provide a lot better summer jobs than we could. Uh, and some of them, and that's what ended up catching up with uh, Don James's program. They had a little uh, overpaying for non-work done, I guess, in those days. But that all seems kind of silly and stupid now with the NIL. So do you think that's the heart of it? You know, because I've, I've never lived in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't go to either of those schools. But it has always fascinated me how there is such animosity. And I didn't know if it was 
rooted in what's happened on the field or if it just naturally exists to some extent between the the two schools and the you know the the states and the the cities uh Washington looking down on Oregon as like a little brother kind of thing is there a is there a, you know a root to the whole thing that's not based just on the football field uh, yeah i i think it's it's the haves and the have nots i mean the Huskies had this great stadium on the edge of Lake Washington. Uh, they had built a, a, a very nice stadium long before Oregon and Oregon State started doing their stadium renovations and work uh, to, to try to catch up to the Huskies and the rest of the college football world. And, and they had a lot of things going for them, you know, back in uh, – uh, Don Heinrich uh, era and 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 they just had a lot of players in the College Football Hall of Fame and Oregon and Oregon State only had a few, you know they but and they were always uh, kind of the better team over a, a longer period of time than than Oregon was or Oregon State. So it, I think both schools developed uh, a pretty strong feeling and. And driving up to Multnomah Stadium all those years to play them in Portland. Uh, and the Portland alumni were very upset when that game got moved to campus at, in, in Eugene and also at, at, at Corvallis. Both the Oregon State and Oregon alumni were not happy because most of the money in those days came from the Portland area in, in donors uh, to both schools. Coach, when I look back at kind of your tenure and I line it up with Washington, I want to talk about that 1980 game a little bit. You know, you, you get your first win against Washington. They were ranked when you played them. I think they were 13th. You beat them 34 to 10. But uh, I'm sure that doesn't tell all the story. What did that mean to you to, to, to beat Washington finally as a head coach? It, it was huge. Uh, it was absolutely huge. Uh, I'll never forget the feeling uh, – you know, because and the dreadful and, and and our fan base felt the same way. And that's why the Kenny Wheaton pick is remembered so strongly, because uh, the Huskies would always have a way of snatching victory away from us, even though we were playing well, we were ahead, we we're winning the game. Uh, and, and in that game in Seattle, uh, we were up and and they had the ball and Steve Brown makes a pick and runs it in for a pick six touchdown to seal it, I think, to make it like 34 to 21 or something like that. But there was always that feeling until that interception happened that they could come back and beat us because they had done it so many times in, in the past. And I think the, sa the same thing with the Kenny Wheaton interception. Nobody remembers the drive before the Kenny Wheaton interception, but we got the ball on the two-yard line in 1994 mishandled a punt or a kickoff and we downed it on the thought the returner thought he was in the end zone and put his knee down and we drive 98 yards for a touchdown uh, and and we run it in with the fullback Dwayne runs it in uh for a 12-yard touchdown and and everybody would remember the drive if we'd have stopped them on fourth down the two times we had a chance going into the pick on the nine yard line but everybody remembers the pick and so do i but 
the drive was impressive too because the Huskies had taken the taken the lead and we made a 98 yard drive to take the lead back from them uh, and it's just there's just so many emotional swings in a football game and uh, you know I can remember another game in Austin Stadium where we had them beat and we punted the ball away late in the game with less than two minutes left and boom punt return for a touchdown and we lose and we kicked their fanny the whole day <laughs> and we end up losing uh another game uh, up in uh, in seattle uh, we had three freshmen starting on defense we hold the huskies to 111 yards total offense and we lose the game and they end up number one in the nation that year. Split split vote, but they were, uh, I think, number one in either the AP or the one of the polls. And it was it was extremely frustrating to go through those type of games. Uh, and and in in that game in Seattle, when we held them uh, to just just over a hundred yards of total offense, we kicked them up and down the field. They blocked a punt for a touchdown and ran one back for a touchdown. And that really gets under my skin because I'm a big special teams guy. So they they did a great job in all phases of the game. And, and they snatched victory away from us on many occasions in my 18 years. Did you guys know what was coming on the Kenny Wheaton pick? Kenny Wheaton knew what was coming because he studied film and he knew in that formation – that slot uh, that that guy, they like to run the out to him. And he just, he read it and stepped in front and made the play. Now, I, I'll tell you, it still baffles me to this day that uh, with the guy they had in the backfield, I don't know why they didn't hand it off because they had time. Uh, but that was a, a fantastic play by a guy who, had done his homework and studying the film. And he did that a lot on his own. He'd take film home at night and look at it. And he, he was just a, a freshman at the time. Was it clear to you immediately the implications of that, that pick and that win, you know, you wake up the next morning. Do you realize the whole dynamic has changed here? No, no, because we had a lot of tough games. We still had to win. And I mean, you know, that pick, everybody's, oh, that got you to the Rose Bowl. And, you know, w without it, we probably wouldn't have got there, but without finishing the rest of the season. And uh, we played Dick Tomey's team in the Desert Swarm in Eugene. And we win that one 10 to 9. Josh Wilcox catches a pass. Yep. And, uh, you know, if we don't win that game, we don't go to the Rose Bowl. And, you know, if we don't come back and win the Oregon State game, uh, uh, Dino Filia catching the screen pass and running it in. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of things. And, and, and finally, a blowout of Stanford down there uh, with Bill Walsh. Uh, we, we had a lot of tough games left. So there wasn't any revel. Oh, my God, after the pick, we're, we've arrived and we're going to go to the Rose Bowl. It's, you know, but as you look back at the season, Everybody likes to remember that play because one, the rivalry was so good. The Huskies were ready. I, you, 
you could have heard a pin drop in that stadium when the Huskies were driving down there on, in the fourth quarter because it had happened to us so many other times, and our fans knew it. And they and they were sitting there thinking, oh, my God, here we go again. The Huskies are going to snatch victory away from us, and we're going to have it rubbed in our face. And then Kenny Wheaton <laughs> changed the whole narrative. So it was a, it was a lethargic uh, not a uh, not a lethargic. I'm using the wrong word. Uh, it was an absolutely outstanding thing to do <clears throat> for our fan base that Kenny Wheaton erased a lot of old ugly memories with that pick. Coach, you you know obviously you play at Oregon State, so you see a rivalry with the Ducks there. You were at UCLA as a position coach. Uh, a couple of different times. So you saw the USC-UCLA rivalry. Uh, in the NFL, you see some rivalries. You're at Kentucky. You've seen some other rivalries. Where does the Oregon-Washington one fit, or how is it different in your mind than, than some of the other rivalries you've been a part of? Well, it's <clears throat> it's not an in-state rivalry. It's a cross-the-border rivalry, and there are more in-state rivalries just like the, you know, the old, what we, we can no, could no longer call it the Civil War, but I will forever. Uh, it, Oregon, Oregon State, uh, you know, SCUCLA is, is a huge rivalry in, in Los Angeles. Two teams in the same town, for crying out loud. Uh, but a cross-state rivalry uh, is huge, and it's a, it's a drivable distance for the fan base. So it's 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 a big rivalry and and it's a, it's one that has had swings of domination the huskies have dominated uh, had do- dominated for a long time the ducks dominated for a stretch but but now oregon is is enjoying i think the longest stretch of dominance in the rivalry uh since its inception and and i think the oregon fans feel pretty damn good about it Rich, do you think the last, say, 25, 30 years of college football in the state of Oregon would have completely flipped if Phil Knight had gone to Oregon State? Well, I think Oregon State's done a great job of, uh, you know, they had Bud Riley there. They beat uh, SC several times. Jonathan Smith is doing a really good job of bringing them back. Uh yeah, I think if Phil Knight hadn't have been an Oregon uh, graduate, well, a lot of things would be different at the University of Oregon because they have uh, arguably the best facilities uh, in the in the country. They have an identity because of the uniforms that is a, they're a national brand right now, and they were never a national brand before Phil Knight uh, got involved. The state of college athletics, it's troubling me a little to see, you know, the transfer portal, NIL, USC, UCLA, maybe to the Big Ten. You know, it, it, as a purist, uh, as a kid who grew up in the western part of the United States, it it bothers me. How does it, how does it all sit with you, Coach, as you look at what's happening? <clears throat> well, everything changes. Uh, you know, I can look back. So when I played at Oregon State, uh, USC, UCLA, Cal, and Stanford, 
and Washington kicked Oregon and Oregon State and Washington State and Idaho, which was part of the old PAC uh, 8 conference, kicked them out of the league. And that's the goodness. I played as an independent. We go to the Liberty Bowl. Terry Baker wins the Heisman Trophy. We're an independent. And the first year they come back into uh, the Pac-8 at that time and, and without Idaho, but, but Washington State, Oregon, Oregon State get invited back. They have an uneven revenue sharing program. Uh, and those three schools rarely ever got on television because there was only one game a week televised. And you didn't get any TV money. Uh, the splits uh, were in favor of the home team. And, and you had to pay the visiting team a certain amount. And sometimes that payment for SC or UCLA going to Pullman or going to Eugene or Corvallis uh, was almost the full amount of the revenue that was brought in on that game. Uh, so the, the financial losses that Oregon and Oregon State took at that time coming back into the league were huge. And that, and that I think, contributed to us not being very good for quite a while until we had some innovation. And, and, and Bill Burns started it. He tried everything to get money into our program at, at, at uh, Oregon. And, and then we got uh, Harold Taylor to step up and be the first million-dollar donor to Oregon football. And then all of a sudden, uh, people started jumping in. And, and then, obviously, the big domino falls, and, and Phil Knight becomes extremely involved uh, pretty much right after the Rose Bowl season. Uh, and, and Oregon becomes a power. Do you think that Rose Bowl season was what was a catalyst for Phil or, you know, you were there at the time and obviously you left for the NFL, but did you feel that that was a pivot point in bringing Knight into the fold or what brought him in? I think, I think that definitely uh, showed that Phil, that Oregon could compete on a national level. And my goodness, what could they do if they had some wherewithal to compete at the national level? And, you know, soon after, when I left, Mike Bellotti asked me, uh, what do you think is the next thing we need? And I said, we need an indoor facility. And, you know, with the Mashovskis and Phil Knight, that, that happens. And then all of a sudden, you know, Mike Bellotti has some success in recruiting. He has all of a sudden winning some football games. And then more things start to happen. And, and the, uh, you know, building out on more and better facilities, the renovation of the stadium. And uh, it just, it just went on and on. And, and the Oregon brand grew and grew and you, you never used to see the Oregon duck on ESPN, but you don't, you, you rarely ever see anything about mascots when the Oregon duck isn't one of the most featured mascots uh, on the program. Rich, do you remember when you where you were when you found out USC and UCLA were going to go to the Big Ten? Uh, I was playing cards at Eugene Country Club, and and uh, 
Casey Martin and King Martin told me they just looked at their phone and they say, hey, SC and UCLA are going to the Big Ten. I said, ah, that's baloney. There's no way that's going to happen. It's crazy. And sure enough, they, they were gone. What do you think the Pac-12, Pac-10, whatever it's going to be, looks like? What does it feel like to you without the L.A. schools? You think it, you know, from a football standpoint, strong future? Well, you know, I think the future is still in limbo. Uh, this is not over. I think uh, maybe when it's three to five years down the road, you you could make an intelligent answer to that question but right now you know we really don't know what's going to happen and Oregon could stay in the league and they could invite one or two other teams in or they could stay stay the course as they are you know they could go independent uh they could uh join another league uh, you know who knows uh the almighty tv dollar is running the show and and also putting yourself in a position to compete for the national championship uh, is is part of the equation. And a lot of these schools now that it, if they do truly expand, which they say they're going to do the playoffs, uh, then it'll become easier for a second or maybe even a third place team in the SEC or the Big Ten to get involved in the college playoffs. But if it stays down to one or two, boy, I think Oregon's probably got a lot better chance of, of doing it as a as a conference champion out here than getting into the melee of uh, playing all those other teams. It'd be like the NFL. I mean, all of a sudden you get all these teams, you got to play each other. Somebody's got to lose. Coach, you, you built something at Oregon that resulted in – four bowl games, I think, in your last six seasons. You go to the SEC later as a college coach. You inherit a Kentucky program that hadn't had a lot of success. You did the same thing. After your first three seasons, you go bowl game, bowl game, bowl game, bowl game. What is it about building a program that you know, or what did you learn at Oregon or maybe figure out that you used at Kentucky? Well, one, you have to recruit quality players that – and unfortunately that doesn't mean they have five stars behind their name when you're recruiting in a deficit situation. So you got to recruit players that have character that want to continue to develop uh, their ability and, and that will take coaching and, and you have to be honest and you have to work them hard and, and push them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. And, and you have to have enough time to let it come to fruition. The SEC has that motto. It just means more. What was it like to be in that conference? Or did you see at the time when you were there the separation that the SEC would soon have? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the only, uh, you know, and what's funny, go back to SC and UCLA. You look at UCLA's crowds in, in the Rose Bowl in the early season games. There's nobody in the stands. Uh, Cal and Stanford, you know, stadium is half empty or more. Uh, more. There's a lot of uh, empty seats in, in Pac-12 stadiums. And 
in the SEC, that doesn't happen much. <laughs> I mean, and the stadiums are a lot bigger. It is, it is a really tough place to play. And I think talent-wise, uh, the Pac-12 offensively has equal talent, uh, receivers, quarterbacks, running backs. Uh, but where the difference in the SEC is on the defensive side of the ball. Big, fast, physical defensive linemen, linebackers, defensive backs. You don't get as many of those kind of athletes on the West Coast as you do in the South. And that's just the way it is. Uh, and it, you know, you had to, and when I was at Kentucky, we had to get bigger and faster. And so we had to recruit taller, lankier guys that could fill in, much like I did at the University of Oregon. We, we took athletes and not necessarily ended up playing them in the position that they played in high school, but developed them and, and put them in a the position they could have better long-term success. Thing is, Rich, I don't remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Pac-12 stadiums were not empty like they are now. So, you know, they weren't what the SEC is, but it wasn't like this. It just seems like there has been a significant downturn in interest in attending games, not everywhere, right? Oregon or Utah still fill in their stadiums, but something has changed in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Well, I think two things have changed. One, every game's on television. So people say, well... You know, why should I go fight the crowd? I can sit home and watch it on television. And the other thing is COVID has changed a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people, one, the West Coast shut their shut the stadiums down. They, they, you know, I mean, there were a couple of games played with no fans. And back in the SEC in there, they, they played with fans. I mean, they, and they had a season. They And, they, and, and the high schools kept playing. And. You know, it just, it was a different culture and a different atmosphere. And even today, a lot of people have a hangover that they don't want to be in, in a big crowd because they're still afraid of getting COVID more on the West Coast than any place else. This week's game uh, at Oregon, how will you watch it? Oregon-Washington rivalry. You, are you a TV guy? Will you be at the stadium? How will you take it I'll in? Be at, I'll, be, I'll be in my seats at the stadium. When you're there, can you watch as a fan, or are you looking at coverages and fronts and trying to figure out what's going on? Isn't that what fans do? Yeah, <laughs> I watch it as a fan. Have you missed any Oregon-Washington games in Eugene? Uh, yeah, I probably missed a couple uh, since I came back, but it's, it's a good one not to miss. Coach, appreciate your time fascinating history and i think a lot of people don't know some of the origin of it so thank you for sharing that with us and uh appreciate you and good luck on the golf course thanks go ducks really appreciate it rich thank you good stuff i like that i thought that was great oh it was really good i, I love that uh what was your big takeaway give us you know what what was your biggest thing that you learned there i mean the best part was the story about todd james and the bus driver <laughs> I mean, that was fantastic. I, I love that they had to bring a bus driver from Portland oh, my and Lord. sit and wait. It just shows you the uh, the intensity of this. Like, I don't think Kalen DeBoer and Dan Lanning will be 
will be doing that kind of stuff. But And also, how about the paranoia of coaches? Oregon's just watering down the field because that's yep. maintenance for the field, and Don James is going, they're, they're making the field slick. Uh, I think it's great that history and that perspective. He's obviously been around the game a lot and been around this rivalry, so it's good stuff. Well, and he certainly just has a great feel still. You know, he's obviously paying close attention because he's got a great feel for, you know, the dynamics of college football right now. I just don't know how many coaches go back and sit in the stadium and sit in their seats. Like Jim Sweeney, when he left Fresno State, I remember he had seats that he would sit in at the games and he would try to be a fan. I think a lot of coaches have a hard time sitting in the stands and watching a game. I think it's interesting that Rich Brooks can do that. Oh, yeah. Well, and maybe it helps because, you know, he's now, what, uh, six coaches removed or however many they've had since yeah. he left. So maybe th- that might that might help him a little bit. I love that insight from now the now 81-year-old Rich Brooks. Uh, I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. I'm here with the great John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. Catch him at pac12hotline.com. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Leave us some feedback. Share it with friends who would enjoy that interview with Rich Brooks. And we'll be back with another episode.